I'd like you to start tonight by trying to imagine yourself in another role or another persona. Imagine, if you can, that you're a prosperous, music-loving citizen of not today's Britain, but the Britain of just before the First World War, 1914. This is the age of massive imperial self-assurance, still in some respects the afterglow of the Edwardian era. It's still very much present. Modern music, for you in this time, would undoubtedly be Edward Elgar, or perhaps, if you're a little bit more adventurous, Richard Strauss. Certainly, land of hope and glory wouldn't have that quaint suggestion of belonging to another age. It would actually embody the spirit of now, indeed of the future for many people. God who made thee mighty, make thee mightier yet. That was what people were feeling and hoping. Or if you think of the noble warmth of Nimrod from the Enigma Variations of Elgar, that too was modern music for an awful lot of people. Indeed, at the very beginning of the century, Elgar had had some difficulty making some people understand what it was he was trying to achieve. His language was too new, if you can imagine that. Anyway, this is 1914. Elgar is now established. And suddenly, out of nowhere, you're confronted with this. Just in case any of you don't know, that's Mars, the first of Gustav Holst's planets, actually written in 1914, played for us there by an expanded BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by David Atherton. In fact, I don't think I've ever been on the stage with quite such a big orchestra before. It really is quite extraordinarily large, certainly by the standards of 1914. But so much of that music was extraordinarily new when it was written in 1914. 
Well, one thing it does have in common with Land of Hope and Glory, uh, pomp and circumstance number one, if you want to be precise, is that it's a march. Clearly, that music has the character of a march. But there, the resemblance ends. For a start, it's in five beats in a bar. One, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two. And who marches in five beats in a bar? It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. But just the actual sound that Holtz produces is, is an incredible, brilliant fusion of all kinds of new effects. One sound, which I think is completely new, certainly in English music at the time, is this overlapping effect he has of the two harps. They play in alternate octaves, like this. We'll hear them one at a time and then together. Put the two harps together and you get this sound. There's the harp, the archetypal romantic liquid instrument sounding completely different, like something jangling and metallic. With that, Hulse asked the members of the string section to play their instruments with the wood on the back of the bow. It's an effect called colenio. He has the same rhythm on the timpani, but again, he says to the timpanist, don't just play this with the usual soft-headed sticks. Use hard wooden sticks, like this. And in the background, all the time, adding a strange color of its own is a deep, soft, metallic roll on the gong. And you put all those together, and the effect isn't so much orchestration as alchemy. It is an amazing sound, and so unlike anything that most music lovers in post-Edwardian England would have expected to hear. Well, one thing about, I mean, just to give some idea, for instance, how unusual that 5-4 rhythm was, my grandfather was a choral conductor. And at about the same time, I think around about 1914, he went to hear a performance of Tchaikovsky's Pathétique Symphony, which by then was still quite new, only a couple of decades old. And that also has a movement, very unusually for a 19th century symphony, in five beats in a bar. And my grandfather obviously was delighted when he saw the conductor had no idea how to beat this. What he did was beat the first four beats in four with his right hand, and then add an extra beat with his left. One, two, three, four, and one, two, three, four. You can imagine the quality of the performance that ensued from that. But that's the kind of culture in which this extraordinarily new music appeared in the way that it did. And also, at the same time, looking at the orchestra, there are, you may have noticed there are a few instruments that you don't normally expect to see in a symphony orchestra. In the woodwind section, for instance, well, later on we're going to be seeing an alto flute, We've got a bass oboe, a very long and convoluted-looking instrument. We've also got a visitor from the brass band at the end of the bass brass section, the euphonium. Or actually, when he's in the orchestra, he's called the tenor tuba. Holst knew his brass instruments very well. And he's using the tenor tuba, the euphonium, for a very special effect. Later on in this movement in Mars, we hear the euphonium with a tune of his own. And it sounds almost like a sort of rallying cry, a, a kind of pompous, deranged call to arms.
I don't know about you, but listening to that, I can hear Stephen Fry's wonderful General Sir Anthony Hogmanay Melchit from Blackadder 4 in one of his crazy mad exhortations to war, or that dreadful, terrifying laugh of his. That's the sort of imagery that it conjures up. Many thanks to our euphonium player, Donald Bannister, who is normally the principal trombonist of the BBC National Orchestra of Wales. The rhythmic effect of this extraordinary 5-4 march intensifies as we reach the climax of Mars. It goes from five crotchets in a bar, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, to a half-speed version, one, two, three, four, five. And you get an effect like someone dragging an immense heavy weight, or the kind of image that comes to my mind, a huge piece of industrial artillery, perhaps. something being on the platform with sounds like that just behind you, I can tell you. I just wanted to dwell, though, on this question of the date, though, because for one other reason, apart from to stress the newness or the forward-looking element in the composing, Mars, as I'm sure many of you are aware, has often been used as background music for television documentaries, for films. It conjures up so powerfully, doesn't it, images of modern industrial warfare. So often it's been used to accompany lumbering tanks, gun emplacements, great bombers, images of devastation on what I called an industrial scale. Yet Holst wrote this before the outbreak of World War I, the war that changed the images of war forever. For most people then, the idea of war would have been cavalry charges, old-fashioned foot soldiery. There were no tanks until 1915 when they were a top-secret innovation. No machine guns. It's hard to resist the feeling, isn't it, that in some way, on some deep artistic level, Holst had a horrible feeling of what might be coming. So this is forward-looking, not just in terms of musical technique, but in terms of the spirit of what it encapsulates, modern warfare tasted in music before it's actually really happened. And also, I mean, talking about the size of this orchestra, the effect at that first performance must have been remarkable because this would have been as big a noise as anybody could have expected to hear musically in the days before amplified rock bands. It's still pretty impressive here, I think, in the Hodenot Hall, isn't it? And there isn't a single amplifier in sight. Well, we come to the end, as it were, in this section of Mars, the bringer of war, but we'll come back to the war theme towards the end of this program for an interesting reason, I think. In the meantime, let's concentrate on more of these extraordinary modernist forward-looking elements, and there are plenty throughout the planets. Take another famous opening, the beginning of the fourth planet, Jupiter, the bringer of jollity.
are so many strikingly innovative elements there in that music for its time. There's the effect as the violins pile in at the beginning with those scintillating repeated dancing figures. They're based on repetitions of this one figure presented by half the second violins. That's repeated over and over again, and then gradually, in four parts, the violins all enter one section at a time. But they do so at irregular intervals, so that the shape seems to change all the time you're listening to it. It isn't a simple, straightforward repetition, but a changing pattern, a dancing pattern. Then we hear the theme played by the six horns, which is in itself rather remarkable. Most orchestras in Hull's time would only have had four. But then comes an even more remarkable effect when the theme is repeated on the full brass, doubled by the two sets of timpani that join in with the theme. Now, okay, having timpani underline a theme is a pretty classically familiar thing. It happens, for instance, near the beginning of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. But in those cases, the timpani would only play along maybe on one or two notes. What Holst asks is for the notes of the melody to be passed between the two sets of timpani so that they double all the notes of the melody. If you hear the timpani on their own, you'll see what I mean. It's pretty striking, isn't it? <laughs> Even now, nearly a century later. I'm trying to think of an effect in music before then like that. The only thing I could think of that was close was the timpani fanfare introduction to the finale of Mahler's Seventh Symphony. But Mahler just asked for the timpani to play a chord of E minor there in fanfare style, not a full melody as Holst does that. Again, Holst is striding off ahead into the future. Even Venus, the bringer of peace, in some ways, this is the movement that looks most backwardly in terms of whole style to his younger romantic self. Yet even this is remarkably forward-looking for its time. There's an opening horn call answered by delicious woodwind chords, including four flutes. And yet it is so austere, such beautiful purity. It's a kind of modern minimal touch, which again is so different from Elgar, or indeed from those huge opulent canvases of Mahler and Strauss, which represented modern music for so many on the continent at the time. In the order of the suite, Venus comes second, immediately after Mars, and after that extraordinary raucous orgy of dissonant violence, this has a wonderful cleansing contrast. listen to that music, I can see that effect you get when your breath hangs in the air on an icy, still morning. The kind of weather, incidentally, that Holst himself loved. He always preferred a good, clear, bright winter day, he said, to a summer day, which says a great deal about him in some ways. Score even looks remarkably modernist for its time. Um, it's full of complicated instructions to the players to ask them to do things they've obviously never been expected to do before. And take the beginning of Mercury, the third movement. This is the movement, the winged messenger. Um, I should explain, by the way, the titles reflect what Holst himself called his private vice, 
which was a fascination with not astronomy, but with astrology. Apparently, he used to do star charts for all his friends, although he would also beg them to be secret about it because apparently he was quite embarrassed about it. But clearly, he found a lot of inspiration in astrology for the ideas of these pieces. Though it's very interesting. Recently, I saw the manuscript of the planets in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. And what was most interesting was that originally the piece was called not the planets, but seven pieces for large orchestra. In other words, this is a piece of music which Hulse seems to see in this extraordinary new modernist tradition. Britain had already heard and reacted with horror to Schoenberg's five pieces for orchestra and with incomprehension to Anton Webern's five pieces for orchestra. But Holst was fascinated by all this stuff. And in calling the piece originally seven pieces for orchestra, he was obviously thinking of himself at least partly in that line of continental modernism. And you see in the score that he's added the title of the movements later Originally, he just put the subtitles, the bringer of war, the bringer of peace, the bringer of jollity, in brackets at the bottom of the page. But then, later on, it seems to have occurred to him, well, why not go public with this? And so you see in a different ink, he's added the title at the top of the page. Sometimes he's actually had to cram it in because there isn't actually enough room for it. So what he's thinking of is the traditional astrological characters of the seven planets. And in the case of Mercury, this is the winged messenger, the fleet-footed mercurial figure who can turn on a sixpence and change at lightning speed. And that's exactly what happens at the beginning of the movement. If you look at the score, what Holst has done is extraordinary. He gives each of the string sections a different key signature. Now again, to someone coming from Elgar, that must have looked absolutely bonkers. And yet, when you hear it, and hear how the harmonies change, as they're passed from between the different sections of the orchestra and the different colours, you realise he knew exactly what he was doing. It's a brilliant spellbinding effect. What key is that music in? Several at once, you might say, and that's exactly how it's written down on the page. There's a sense here you get throughout the planets of a composer massively enjoying himself with this amazing, huge, colour-enhanced orchestra. Perhaps you could think of him as being like a film animator who's excitedly trying out the latest computer-generated imagery for the first time, or maybe a car enthusiast road-testing some amazing new shiny toy. Gustav Holst as Jeremy Clarkson. That's quite a thought, isn't it? But you get the idea. And this idea of magic and of special effects, I think, comes particularly to the fore in the movement called Uranus, the magician. The best magicians, and certainly in Hull's time, knew how to create the effect of wonder, even terror, and then devilish humor. And you can certainly sense all of those as this movement reaches its astonishing climax, where the magician, you can hear him, makes himself vanish in an apocalyptic flash and a cloud of smoke.
like extraordinary elemental flybacks, and then that amazing effect when the organ does that huge lissando right up the keyboard and all the white notes, and then that magical effect of that frozen string dissonance and those quiet, bell-like, ghostly harmonics on the harp. It's a marvellous piece of orchestral magic, a musical evocation, that. But there's something interesting. Hulse drops a very interesting musical clue in this piece as to tell us a little bit more about the nature of this magician. He starts right at the beginning, because that four-note motive we just heard picked out in harmonics by the first harp is sounded out boldly right at the beginning by brass and timpani. Now, those four notes clearly make up a kind of musical motto for Uranus, but in fact, they tell us more than that. The four notes in our notation are G, E-flat, A, and B. Okay, so, so what? Well, this is the point at which, as once or twice before in this series, we introduce you to the wonders of German musical notation, because the Germans have more letters for musical notes than we do. The note that we call B the Germans call H. So if you've ever seen a score of a piece that looks like Bach's Mass in H minor, you'll know why. The note that they call B is the note that we call B flat. Also, if you want to make a note of flat in German, you stick S on the end of it. So E flat is S. So there's another letter you could use, S as, for instance, did Shostakovich with D-S-C-H. So if you take those four notes in German musical notation, they spell G-S-A-H. Well, the first and last are obvious, aren't they? G-H, Gustav Holst. The S and the A are the other two notes of Gustav Holst that you can spell in German musical notation. So the theme is Holst's own name. In other words, Uranus, the magician, is himself. A little private joke there, but it's taken years for people to decode, it seems. All these years he was quietly enjoying that without telling anyone. And yet it seems so untypical in certain ways of Holst himself, because every description you read of this man was that he was modest, shy, almost comically softly spoken. I met an old lady once who'd been one of his pupils at St Paul's Girls' School. She remembered him sort of running up after her in the street and trying to shout her name, and it wasn't until he was actually behind her that she could hear what he was shouting, because his voice was so quiet. It said that if anyone ever asked him for an autograph, he'd present them with a printed card which said, Mr Gustav Holst regrets that he does not give autographs. <laughs> Still, there's something to have, I suppose. But there's that sense of wicked humour in the music behind the self-effacing front. It's that sense we get especially in Uranus. Yet definitely Holst was a man full of paradoxes. Because with this wonderful sense of joviality and magic and tremendous huge orchestral effects, there was also a mystical tendency in Holst. He was fascinated by Far Eastern religious writings. He'd already made some very striking choral settings of hymns from the ancient Hindu Rig Veda. And yet, here in the planets, we find this apparently breathtaking and outrageous display of self-confidence. It's as though he's saying, on the one hand, here I am, look at me, look at what I can do. 
Yet, at the same time, in 1914, when he began the planets, Gustav Holst was still more or less unknown. He certainly wasn't a musical celebrity like Elgar, nor had he begun to make headway like his close friend Rafe Vaughan Williams. So who on earth was likely to want to put on a piece of music on this extravagant scale, so challenging to play, asking orchestral musicians to do things they'd never been expected to do by a composer who hadn't yet made his mark? And as the war broke out and continued, and Hulse continued to work on the planets, the economic straight and circumstances made it less and less likely that it would ever be heard. So on the one hand, it's this extraordinary extrovert display, look what I can do. On the other, as Hulst was writing it, he must have wondered to himself seriously if he'd ever actually hear it performed. And that paradoxical side, I think, emerges most of all in what apart from the sledgehammer brilliance of Mars, I think for most people would be the two most extraordinary and original of all the planets. We'll start with the fifth planet, Saturn, the bringer of old age, which apparently was Holt's own favorite. And I can believe it. It's an extraordinary conception of Saturn. And it begins with an equally extraordinary sound, swaying chords played by harp harmonics, doubling two low flutes and an alto flute. It's a chilling and unforgettable sound. I don't know if we have any fans here of the cult TV series The Mighty Boosh. If there are, I think I see a smile there. Listen to the theme tune the next time you're watching it. They've stolen those two chords in that orchestration. They've sampled them to make the beginning of that theme. It's as though that effect that Holt contrived is still as unsettling and eerie a hundred years later. Then, underneath those two rocking chords on the flutes and harps, the double basses alone, which in itself is quite remarkable, enter with the theme. And you'll realize as they play the theme that the harp chords are off the beat, so that they're apparently backwards and forwards swaying beat, seems to clash with the rhythm of the bass tune. It adds to this effect of extraordinary wintry heaviness, the relentless ticking of time, and an intense melancholy.
Even though it might have seemed extravagant to some for Holst to be including instruments like the alto flute and the bass oboe that we heard just at the end there, I think Holst's extravagance, you'll all agree, is entirely justified by the wonderful, idiosyncratic way he uses those unusual instruments. The bass oboe particularly is an absolutely indispensable colour, I think, for that figure at the end there. Holst puts suggestions in the score of how it might be cued in by another instrument if the bass oboe isn't available, a bassoon perhaps. But I'm sure you'd lose a lot of the character of that idea if you pass it to the bassoon. It's got to be the bass oboe. He's absolutely right about that. What happens after that beginning is that Saturn develops as a very slow, effortful procession, a cortege, possibly a funeral march, or at least the slow march of time. And it builds gradually to an elemental, anguished climax, with those chiming chords that we heard on the flutes and the harps, now played at twice the speed, frenzied with tubular bells doubling them at the same time. Holst again, another note, asking the player to do what he's not expected to, to play the tubular bells not with soft sticks, but with metal sticks to make them sound even harsher than ever. It results in a climax of extraordinary, tragic power. Saturn, the bringer of old age. So what on earth was a young man of 30 doing conjuring up images of old age of such devastating, tragic intensity in this music? Well, I'm indebted to the musician and musical handwriting expert Ruth Rostron for this suggestion. She pointed out that Holst from childhood had been a remarkably frail and invalid boy. He had terrible eyesight, his health was never particularly good, and he suffered almost from, I think, early youth from a neuritis of the hand, which meant that his hand shook, and he could never really excel on the piano and violin. So, in fact, he took up the trombone instead and became a fabulously skilled trombonist. Of course, all he had to do, of course, there was move the slide. It doesn't matter if your hand shakes there. 
Not true, of course. It's also maybe where he got his fabulous ear for orchestration, because some of the finest composer-orchestrators have been brass players. Malcolm Arnold played the trumpet, or Richard Strauss, who played the horn. Real wizards of the orchestra like Holst. Holst wasn't a sporty boy by any means. In fact, he was more or less forbidden to take part in sport. He was muffled up and protected from early years. And then when his mother had a huge breakdown when he was just eight and music was banned from the house, he had to live an existence where he was more or less tiptoeing around quietly. So he must have had that sense, Ruth said, and I'm inclined to agree that in some sense he was old from the start, old from birth, that he was born old. You add that to the fact that he was profoundly depressive and in fact suffered from quite a serious depression just before he began work on the planets, and you can see how that might all end up being configured to this extraordinary music from Saturn. But it's not all this grim in Saturn, because after that climax, in fact, just at the end of that passage we've just heard, comes a wonderful transformation. In fact, I'm tempted to call it a transfiguration, because the effect is like a sudden lightning of a heavy load. We'll hear it from the end of the previous extract so that you can get the full effect. We'll have the plaintive bass oboe, the great sigh from the cellos and the violas, that Saturnine growl from the tuba and the trombone, and then this. Those soft, chiming chords alternating between the two harps are so wonderfully soothing after that music we've just heard, aren't they? And underneath it, the double bass theme, although it's more or less the same, seems to have changed in character, particularly it rises almost effortlessly, just as before where it was so heavy and earthbound and weighed down. Now it seems to be almost taking off, rising as though gravity had been suspended. It leads, eventually, as the textures grow more and more rich and beautiful in this final section of Saturn, to a heart-easing conclusion. We have rippling flutes and alto flute, harps, bells now played with soft sticks instead of with the hard metal sticks we heard before, the hushed use of a very deep organ pedal, and at the end, the end seems to be completely weightless, as though the soul had almost risen free of the very forces that weighed it down so heavily at the beginning of Saturn.
You can't so much hear those deep bass organ notes as feel them there, can't you, through the floor? Extraordinary effect. I know Holst wanted us to think in astrological rather than astronomical terms when he wrote this piece. Well, that's what it seems. But I can certainly remember the first time I saw through a really powerful telescope at the age of 13 and saw Jupiter and the extraordinary effect of the stars around it and the moons of Jupiter in rotation around it. And that music just came straight into mind. There is something cosmic about it, something on such a huge, beautiful, luminous, clear scale. It's hard not to think in astronomical terms, I think, in connection with music like that. Well, Saturn is the fifth of the planets. Uranus follows, but already Holst is looking forward to the mood of his final planet, Neptune, the mystic. And here he extends the palette of his orchestral effects to completely new breaths. And it's so much more than effect here recently that he's creating, because in this last of the planets, we really do seem to be standing on the threshold of a strange new world. It's indicated in one of the longest footnotes in the whole of the score of the planets. The orchestra is to play sempre pianissimo, always very quiet throughout, dead tone. And that's exactly the kind of effect you get at the beginning. Remember at the beginning of Mars, we had that extraordinary effect of the two harps playing in alternate octaves so that we got that strange metallic jangling effect. Well, there's another remarkably modernist effect. He asks of the harps just there. He's a tremolando between two chords, like this. And the strange and extraordinary orchestral colours just go on piling up throughout Neptune. But the most remarkable effect comes at the climax, if one can talk about a climax in a movement that's all pianissimo. It was a huge surprise for the audience at the first performance in 1919, and it still is for some people coming to the planets for the first time. Just in case there are any of you who don't know what happens at the end of Neptune, I won't spoil it for you.
Ah, so that's why the door was open at the side there. Because at this point, we bring in the women's voices of the BBC National Chorus of Wales. Holst asks for a women's choir to be placed backstage and in another one of those extraordinarily long and complicated footnotes at the end of the piece, he asks for the door to be closed very slowly so that you hear the sound of the chorus fading out. We'll hear that in a moment. It's extraordinary. The voices came in, as I could see from your faces, some of you began to recognize, almost imperceptibly at first. They don't register until after they've been singing for a moment or two. They're holding a single high sustained note, a G. In fact, it needs quite carefully managed relay breathing to keep that G going without it sounding as if people are breathing in the middle of it. It's like a sudden laser point of very soft light. Perhaps Holst was thinking of the kind of inner light that was aimed for by Hindu and Buddhist meditation. Maybe this is an indication that something like that has been achieved. And as the voices begin to become clearer in our minds, as we can hear that they are singing, Holst has the violins respond with one of the only two phrases in the entire movement where he allows any kind of expression, a relief from that dead tone that he absolutely stipulates at the beginning of the piece. It gives the violin's phrases a kind of sense of a quiet rapture, as though the soul is blossoming with a kind of hushed joy, just as that soprano light goes on. So has the mystic achieved enlightenment? Well, not quite, perhaps, at this stage. There's one final stage to come. The note that the sopranos hold is a G, which is exactly the same note as that to which Mars, right from the start, was obsessively fixed. And also like Mars, Neptune is in five beats in a bar, arranged in the same pattern. One, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two. So although these hugely contrasted movements at opposite ends of the planets are poles apart emotionally, they're actually made on another level of the same musical elements. They reflect each other musically. The mystic straining after inner light away from this world and the horror of war and suffering, the very elements from which he seeks to escape, musically mirror one another. I don't think that can be entirely accidental. I can't help hearing an echo of the times, too. Neptune was the last of the planets to be composed in 1917. By then, English people had seen more than enough of the horror of war, even at one remove. The effects were visible at home. There'd been bombings with Zeppelins in London. There'd been deprivation, fear, the presence of the wounded and seriously mutilated everywhere. Gustav Holst was possibly giving voice in this music to a desire from, that many felt for freedom from all this oppressive horror. It does make sense of what happens at the very end of Neptune. Remember, the voices entered on that G, the note on which the obsessive fury of Mars seemed to be impaled. But what Holtz does at the end is magical. He has that G resolve, as it were, by letting it rise by a half step, a semitone, like this.
So at the end, that obsessive fixed G finds resolution upwards in gorgeous melting harmonies from the choir fading away into the beyond. Has it stopped? <laughs> Never fails. Extraordinary effect. And according to one report I read of the first performance in 1919, there was an immensely long silence at the end of the performance. Nobody knew whether it was right to clap after music like that, even though it had made such a powerful impression, apparently, for Holst, for his immediate joy. The Planets was a huge immediate success although he quickly seems to have regretted it. He didn't really like success and celebrity all that much, it seems. Still, there we are at the end of Neptune, the mystic turning inwards, away from, looking at for the last time at Mars, at the musical elements of Mars, the hideous bringer of war, and then fading off into somewhere completely different. It's almost like the kind of process of reflection described as essential to meditation by the Buddha if one wishes to free oneself from attachment to suffering and pain in this world. Host almost seems to be living through that in the last stages of Neptune. And this music seems to reach for beyond in all sorts of other ways. Musically, it seems to be reaching into a kind of new world as well. At the same time, it seems to be looking beyond the world in which it was originally born. After all, that war was to change the world irrevocably. And if Elgar's land and hope and glory seemed like modern music in 1914, it was very quickly to look like part of an irretrievable past in the world following the end of the First World War. <laughs> 